Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 114 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Finally, we've had some rain. The spring honey extraction has turned into a honey cutout and I've another tale of trouble with the truck. Beekeeping Short and Sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Hi everyone, and well, here we are again, another week and another series of challenges. It all goes with the territory of being a commercial beekeeper, I guess, but sometimes these little bumps in the road go straight through to the bone. So we finally got some rain after a very lengthy period of dry spring weather with some very high accompanying temperatures, but we finally got what was predicted to be a few small showers for a few days, and that turned into some very prolonged, fairly heavy rain that has lasted for around a week to 10 days, and it's due to continue right through until the weekend. Uh, But the weekend, we're looking at sunshine and showers, and then once we get through the weekend, it looks as if the weather is going to improve into some more summer-like temperatures. I try to get the podcast recorded and edited by the middle of each week if I can, and that means that on the release day, which is normally Friday, things can have changed quite dramatically. So here I am on Monday typing away with dark grey ominous clouds outside and rain threatening. I'm actually home from the new unit. I must come up with a new name for that particular location. I have the workshop over with Pete, so I need to think of another name to call Unit 2. Anyway, I'm home from the unit because I was expecting delivery of a Wi-Fi hotspot gadget from Vodafone today so I can set up Wi-Fi at the still-to-be-christened unit. It's crazy how much work happens online for me these days, and it's not a surprise to see maybe 20 or 30 emails from various beekeepers around the world asking questions about their beekeeping or a particular technique. Add to that all of the junk mail that you get, and it soon mounts up. It will be so good to have Wi-Fi at the unit so I can work a little more efficiently there. Anyway, the weather is a bit mixed up right now, not because of the rain, but the daytime temperatures are particularly chilly, barely getting into double figures in centigrade. It is due to warm up again as we head to the end of the week, so I imagine inspections are going to be a lot of fun over the next couple of days. I'm sure the bees will be as grumpy as hell, especially as the honey supers came off last week, so that's going to annoy them as well as the cooler weather. Add to that the June gap, and it's beginning to look a lot like double glove territory. That's where the bees get so nasty, I have to put on two pairs of the nitrile gloves that I wear. The worst colony I've tackled in recent years was also a very good honey production colony. How many times do you hear that? Nasty colonies producing large volumes of honey. I'm not sure it's actually that accurate, but on this occasion it was true. 
there were around five supers of spring honey to come off. We're talking about six or seven years ago now, I think. Anyway, Steph was helping me, and we ended up wearing three pairs of gloves, had to put duct tape around our wrists and ankles to stop the bees from getting at us there, and wear a baseball cap to stop them stinging through the bee suits on our heads. It was an intense morning, that's for sure. So I'm expecting trouble this week. There's a couple of colonies that I just know are going to be trouble, so I'll leave those until last. The bees are going to be a little cramped as we've taken off the supers as well, so that will force more bees down into the brood box, despite having added additional space above the queen excluder. The clearer boards worked really well again, at least for the most part. There were a couple of colonies that had a few hundred bees stuck in the supers, and I used our battery-operated leaf blower to remove the last few bees from all of the supers. I really don't want to take a truckload of bees back to help out with the honey extraction. Thank you very much. We arrived at the apiary at around six in the morning. With it being chilly, the bees were mostly still tucked away in the hives, which made for a generally easy collection. As we got to the field, it started to rain quite heavily, and I was reminded of a statement I made to Steph last year after we got absolutely drenched moving colonies from the oilseed rape pollination last year. Something along the lines of, I'm not doing this again unless we've got all the wet weather gear we need. There were a few expletives mixed in there, as you can imagine, but I was soaked through and not having a good morning at that time. Anyway, this time I was ready I brought my Bodum filter coffee mug, so we sat and drank coffee until the rain stopped. Just a few minutes, as it turned out, but I wasn't getting out of the truck until I'd had my coffee. Forty or so supers later, we were strapped down and ready to head back to the new unit. Someone please come up with a name for me. The Honey House or something. There must be a, a name that I can christen it. Anyway... That was last Thursday, the truck being booked in for another repair job. More of that shortly. We got the supers off the truck and stacked onto the newly made movable dollies. These are plywood boards about 500mm square with little swivel casters on the bottom. These, of course, are peat-made, and jolly good they are too. It makes moving a 150-kilo stack of honey supers so easy and a lot less strain on my back. The previous week, Pete and I managed to extract a few supers of lovely liquid honey, but those supers hadn't been anywhere near oilseed rape. Of course, I say we're about to have an extraction, but because of the various challenges, mostly self-inflicted, the move to the new unit being the main one, but because of these, the honey extraction of the oilseed rape was delayed, and this current stack was full of it and meant that it was unlikely to extract. The issue here is the high glucose content of the oilseed rape honey. Glucose has a propensity to granulate very quickly. That means even when the supers are full of bees, if it cools slightly, tiny glucose crystals will form, and that seems to set off the rest of the honey into granulating, meaning there's no chance of a beekeeper with minimal facilities being able to do anything with it except cut it out and melt it down. Applying heat melts the wax and liquefies the honey again, and I have to say my Appy Melter is an absolute godsend for doing just this. I can fill it to the very top and turn on the heat, and by the morning there's a lake of molten wax sitting on top of the liquefied honey. The wax actually protects the honey from the top heat, while gentle bottom heat keeps the honey warm enough to run out of the tap. 
This is why I only use unwired foundation these days in the supers. It's so much easier to cut through unwired wax than trying to chop your way through those thin wires which snag and catch on the knife. I use an old bread knife to cut out the comb, if anyone was wondering. I find the serration works really well. No need for heated knives or anything more complicated. The Appy Melter will take around 10 supers of fully drawn frames of granulated honey. So here we are on Monday, and I'm still at it. Once the warming process has happened, it's simply a case of drawing off the honey from beneath the wax and then drawing off the wax into stainless steel buckets to cool down, ready for wax exchange. The honey goes through a double strainer into a 100 kilogram settling tank where it sits for a couple of hours before being transferred into honey buckets for storage, all neatly labelled with date and location details on the outside of the bucket. Well, every last frame was solid, and they got more solid as the weekend progressed. I've only got another 10 supers to sort, and the deep clean can then take place. I put a heavy-duty paper floor covering down, so actually... It's just a case of washing everything out for the summer extraction and then rolling up the floor covering, which will no doubt be a sticky mess by the time I get through. It's one of my better ideas, although I think the original idea was Steph's. I've been toying with the idea of more kit for the extraction process and was talking to a fellow bee farmer who's just invested in a honey pump, a filter sump and some settling tanks. The filter sump is one of those up and under baffle tanks where the liquid honey flows through the various baffles either leaving wax floating at the top or debris sunk at the bottom of the next one. The clean honey that comes out of the end section is pumped through a final strainer set up before going into the settling tanks. Can you tell that I'm green with envy? It sounds like a great setup but the first thing I need to do is to build a wall and that's going to cost. I'm dividing the new unit so that the honey room is separated at the back of the new unit and can be kept completely isolated and clean. I may have already mentioned this in a previous podcast, so my apologies if I'm repeating myself. I have had a couple of builder chaps come in to give me a quote on the work, and the two couldn't have been more different. It seems like one of them wants to put up a wall made of sticks and tissue paper, and the other wants the full belt and braces construction. I'm waiting to see what the costs end up being, but my gut tells me to go for the more substantial build, even if it costs a lot more. I want this thing to last and not fall down after a year or two. Looking forward, I want to be able to produce some of our other products at the unit, so the honey room needs to be more multifunctional, and to that end, it needs to be a proper job, even if it means that I have to wait for the sump, pump and settling tanks. And all of that will have to wait as, once again, my ageing truck has had another fix. I say ageing, but it's only a 2006 model, so it's not that old, and the mileage is pretty low for a truck of its age. Here I have to pause because the weeks seem to melt into each other, and I can't for the life of me remember if I've already told you this story. It must be old age creeping on, so again, I apologise if I've already explained this. Anyway, ever since the clutch blew up on me and was fixed, there's been an annoying squeak coming from the back of the truck whenever I'm in reverse. Ease up the clutch, and there was the squeak. As soon as it happened, I went back to the garage and mentioned it, but all I got from them was an, oh yeah, it does, doesn't it? But not any more help than that. I've put up with it for some considerable time, until more recently it became worse and started to squeak in forward gears as well as reverse. As luck would have it, opposite the 
new unit, yet to be named, is a repair and MOT garage, and I thought I'd see if they could pinpoint the problem. As soon as I mentioned it, a couple of the mechanics were laying flat on their backs on the ground beside the truck, asking me to reverse so they could hear the noise. Almost immediately, they decided it was something called the universal joint, and it needed replacing. A simple job should only take a couple of hours. The truck was at the garage for five days, and all my plans for moving bees and inspections went out the window. It seems my truck is an older model that the 2006 date would have you believe, and there are several universal joints it could be, and they're all different sizes. It was a case of third time lucky, and once they had the right part, it was fixed promptly, and we're back on the road, minus any squeaks. Stupidly, when I reverse now, I make the squeaking noise because I've become so accustomed to it. I was so glad to get back out onto the bees, though. It felt like I was missing the truck for longer than a week, and thank goodness in part to the cooler, wetter weather that we've had. I managed to check the colonies at the oilseed rape on Wednesday, even though it was cool and trying to rain, and thank goodness I did. Several of the colonies were near starving, despite being left what I considered to be more than enough food to last them the week. The largest colony, that's the one where we had the skyscraper of supers on, was in a terrible state, having eaten its way through not just the brood box of food stores, but also the near full super of food we left on them when we took off the honey the previous week. It just goes to show you how tricky it can be trying to judge just how much food each colony needs for a week without forage. Starvation happens very quickly once the bees run out of food and the conditions are such that they have no forage or are unable to get out because of the weather conditions. It was apparent immediately on opening the hive. There were some dead bees already, but the rest were incredibly sluggish and barely moving. You could be mistaken for thinking it was a poisoning event, but for the fact that all the other colonies we'd inspected up to that point were fine. I'm glad to say I was able to take off a brood box from another colony that was going to come off for extraction. The food donor colony was on a triple national brood. Let me explain why. They were going really well, building up nicely, filling a brood box with honey, had a double brood box area for the brood nest, and then promptly swarmed. They were left to allow the new virgin queen to emerge and mate, all of which worked out fine, but then, while we were inspecting, the brood boxes got a little jumbled up, and it became apparent that the queen could now be in any of the three brood boxes. It's a long story, but let's just say it was down to me not giving clear enough instructions. Anyway, the easiest way to identify which box the queen was in was to put two queen excluders in between all three boxes to separate them out. So we had the floor, the first brood box, a queen excluder, the second brood box, another queen excluder, and then the third brood box. This meant that a week later, the queen could be found in the brood box with the eggs in it. That all worked out really well, and we discovered the queen this week in the middle brood box. That's how we ended up with three brood boxes on this colony this week and why I was able to confidently shake out all the bees and take the full brood box of food and give it to the large colony that was pretty much on its last legs. In this situation the bees need food immediately so rather than just place the food on top of the main brood box I used my uncapping fork to scrape away the cappings on the stored honey and run some of the honey down between the frames onto the bottom brood box so the bees could immediately get some food. 
It was like waving a magic wand. Within seconds of the honey reaching them, the bees were suddenly feeding and becoming quite lively again. In this situation, it was very much a case of feed and leave. All these bees needed was some food. They certainly didn't want a beekeeper pulling frames apart and disturbing them further. I have every confidence that they'll be fine next week now they have the additional food, and I'm hoping I manage to rectify my mistake early enough to allow them to strengthen up sufficiently to enjoy a warm summer of foraging and maybe be able to take a summer crop of honey off them. As I've said before, beekeepers are probably the biggest threat to the honeybees. We all make silly mistakes sometimes, and mostly it's a misjudgment rather than an obvious error. While I'm talking inspections in cooler conditions, do make sure that you don't spend too much time looking at frames when you're inspecting. There's simply no reason to keep frames out of the hive for extended periods of time when the weather is so cool. For instance, all I was doing yesterday was checking for eggs, queen cells and food stores. I wasn't looking for the queen. I wasn't looking for disease. I wasn't trying to perform splits or manipulations. I wanted to get into the hives and out again as quickly as I could. Obviously, if you're queen rearing, you're on a fixed timetable and you have to do the various manipulations required, regardless of the weather, otherwise you could lose an entire batch of queens. As with most things in beekeeping, there are always exceptions to the rules, so always take a local and personal view on why you're doing whatever it is you're doing and decide if it's necessary and the right thing to be doing at that time. And finally this week, I had an email from Peter Nelson, the director of the Pollinators documentary, who I chatted with a while back on the podcast. If you've not heard the interview, do go back and have a listen to Peter's story. However, the reason for Peter's email, other than some friendly beekeeping chat, was some exciting news about the documentary. Peter attached a press release, and I'm simply going to read it out here. Any references to online links I'll check out and post in the podcast notes that accompany this week's podcast. So here goes. The award-winning documentary The Pollinators will be released across all digital platforms on June the 16th, 2020 right ahead of National Pollinator Week, which in America is June the 22nd to the 28th. The Pollinators is a cinematic journey around the United States following migratory beekeepers and their truckloads of honeybees as they pollinate the flowers that become the fruits, nuts and vegetables we all eat. The many challenges the beekeepers and their bees face en route reveal flaws to our simplified, chemically dependent agriculture system. We talk to farmers, scientists, chefs and academics along the way to give a broad perspective about the threats to honeybees, what it means to our food security and how we can improve it. The Pollinators has screened widely in theatres and communities across the US and around the world, and we're thrilled that it is now available digitally and viewable in your home. The Pollinators is available for educational and library licensing through our educational distributor, Collective Eye, and also available on Canopy. To find out more about the film and to sign up for email updates, please visit our website and watch the trailer. As I said, I'll post links so that you can visit their website and check out the trailer. Do take a look at the documentary. I think it's a great piece of film work and shows the sheer scale of 
pollination services that beekeepers provide in the US. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast, and do keep the comments coming. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page, where you can access lots more content. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Thank you.